Thanks, Josh. It's a great privilege to be here with you this morning. And if you have your Bibles open in front of you, if you don't, uh, please turn to Genesis 2. We'll be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And I know the other pastors have this conviction, as do the elders, is that really none of us have any authority to say anything on our own. Uh, we, we have no right to tell you what the will of God is unless we are explaining and applying the word of God in the scripture. So test my words, look at God's word, and ask, is this what God is saying? So I'd like us to open up in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, the fact that you have given your word to us is a great thing, that you have not left us alone in this world, reaching and groping for you, trying to understand who you are, but you have plainly revealed yourself. Would you send your spirit once again and fill us Illumine your word. Guide us as we listen. Help us to be hearers who are faithful and who are not hearers only, but also doers. Would you guide my words to be pleasing in your sight? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was 13 years old, my parents divorced. After a number of years of arguing and fighting uh, with the bedroom door closed, and it was painful. It led to a lot of um, loneliness for me and for my brothers. Shame, hurt, tried to hide it. It was a difficult time uh, for us for a number of years. In another instance, I watched a related family member, an older couple who lived together for many, many years in the same house, uh, lived in different rooms of the house and rarely talked to each other. And when they did talk to each other, the husband often criticized his wife, so, so much so that in her later years, she barely even talked. In another instance, a woman and a husband I knew, uh, the woman became so entrenched in the, the world of online uh, chat rooms back, this was a, a while back, she spent so much time on her computer that, the, that her household uh, fell into disarray her husband worked hard to try to reestablish a relationship with his wife, but it wasn't working. And each of these situations was characterized by deep loneliness. Marriage is not supposed to be that way. I know because of the sinful world that we live in, and the sin that's in our own hearts, and the selfish inclinations that we have, that many of us experience that loneliness in our marriages today or we have in the past. That we have this relationship of, of covenant, of devotion to one another, but there's something lacking. There's, there's something missing. There's a connection that's not happening that should be there. I can think in my own marriage with Kendra. When we fight and argue, and it's almost always my fault, I can guarantee you. And there's this sense of emptiness inside of me when we're at odds with each other, it feels like the whole world is upside down and things don't seem right. It's because marriage is not supposed to be that way. In fact, as we see in the passage this morning and we're going to take a look at, is that marriage is a covenant of devoted companionship to overcome loneliness. The reason God put a man and a woman together is to fight the loneliness 
the tendency to isolation that we each have. God has established marriage as a covenant to defeat loneliness. It's supposed to be characterized by devoted companionship. And that's what we're going to see this morning in this passage in Genesis 2. There's a lot that can be said about marriage. could spend many, many hours going through all the passages in the Bible on marriage. We're going to focus just here in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And we're going to be taking a look at, at what I'm going to work through the verses, try to help us understand what is it that's happening here in these verses, and then spend some time applying them. But So we're going to first jump in to verse 18. And before we do that, let me remind us where Josh took us last week. We're in Genesis 2. We're focusing in on the sixth day of creation. Remember, Genesis 1 has the six days of creation. Genesis 2 is, is narrowing in. It's, it's like a microscope on the sixth day of creation. God has created Adam out of the dust. He put him in the garden to work it, to keep it, to tend it, to protect it, to worship God in that garden. The garden was a temple. And God has said, you can eat of all these trees except the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And that's the context to which we come here in verse 18. So God says to Adam, I'm sorry, he doesn't say this to Adam. He says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. In verse 18 of Genesis 2. It's striking because over and over in Genesis chapter 1, God has repeatedly said, he's created things and he said, it was good, it was good, it was good. And at the end of Genesis 1, in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So for God to say, it's not good, is really striking. And it's not Adam complaining. Adam didn't come to God and say, hey God, I'm feeling a little lonely here. Would you do something for me? God looks at Adam and he says, it's not good that the man should be alone. God had a will for Adam to accomplish, and Adam couldn't accomplish it by himself. I want to pause here and say something real quick to the guys because, guys, I think we have this tendency towards independence, towards believing that you know, we, can just, we can take care of life on our own. And this verse has been a good reminder to me that I need a woman to help me with a lot of things in life. That being alone, when I'm alone, I can't do all that God has for me. Apart from a special gifting to singleness to accomplish his will, which I'll talk about a bit later. But the normal pattern is that it's not good to be alone. And he goes on to say in verse 18, I will make a helper fit for him. Josh mentioned last week that that term helper doesn't mean weakness. It's not, it's not saying this woman that God is going to create is somehow lesser than Adam. It's a word, as Josh mentioned, that's used for God. God is a helper of his people. He supplies the strength that is lacking in his people. He is there for them. And that is this this helper he is going to create for Adam to provide what Adam is lacking. And it says a helper fit for him, corresponding to him is another way of translating it. Not equal to him, not the same as him, but equivalent to him in, in many qualities, in standing before God, in worth before God, in dignity, both made in the image of God, someone similar but a little different than Adam. That's who God's going to create. So then we move into verses 19 and 20, and I don't know if any of you have thought of this before, but do verses 19 and 20 feel a little bit out of place? 
God says, I'm going to make this helper for Adam. And then all of a sudden, there's this strange interlude where God brings all these animals before Adam. And says, now out of the ground, the Lord had formed, God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. What an interesting job. It's Adam's first task. God had created Adam. He said, Adam, the first thing I need you to do is name all these animals. And I don't think he had like every single subspecies come before Adam because that probably couldn't happen in just one day. But it was probably groups of animals. And Adam, it says, uh, looked at these animals and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names in verse 20 to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. God had commanded Adam in chapter 1 to have dominion over the creatures of the earth, to rule over them, and this is, God's, this is Adam's first act of dominion. He looks at the animal, studies it, tries to see what its characteristics are, and gives it a name. And in the Hebrew mindset, a name expressed character and identity. It, it told you a little bit about who the person was by their name. So Adam is expressing his leadership over the animals, giving names to them. But in verse 20, for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now for some of you who love dogs and cats, you might have an argument with this verse, but that as great as the dog or cat is, or a horse or a rabbit or whatever it is, there's an emptiness in Adam. It's not the helper that he needs. There's something missing. And what I believe these two verses are here for is to help us feel Adam's loneliness. As animal by animal by animal passes by Adam, mm -mm, not that one either. And the more animals pass by and the more Adam names them, the more alone he feels. And the more the reality of Adam's need for a helper comes to the fore. So we move into the second scene here. Adam is definitely in need of a helper. He is lonely. Verses 21 through 23, God creates that helper. He creates the woman. In verse 21, is, it's actually an expansion of verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. There's no contradiction here. As I mentioned before, Genesis 2 is an expansion of what happens in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1 verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But here's how he did it. It's kind of fascinating to read the details of this. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon a man. This is surgery happening. I don't know if the first anesthesiologist got their idea for surgery here, but you know, God put Adam to sleep. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. It could be a literal rib from the side of Adam, or it could have been you know, a chunk of flesh from his side. We're not sure. The words could be translated either way. But God performs surgery. He performs the first act of divine healing too. He closes up the place. And he takes a chunk of Adam out. And it says in verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Fascinating. God made Adam out of the dust in verse 7. But then he makes Eve, the woman, out of Adam. And there's significance to that. It's showing Adam's headship or leadership, his role in the family. And it's also, I think that the picture of what God is doing here is a picture of their relationship. I really enjoy what Matthew Henry, the commentator, says about this. He says, Eve was not made out of Adam's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, 
but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I just just love that, you know? It's like God is taking part of Adam. He makes the woman, and it's a picture of this close relationship that's to be there. And then God introduces the woman to the man. And it says in verse 22, and he brought her to the man. It's the first arranged marriage. God takes the woman, introduces her to the man, and says, you're going to be married. And Adam sees the woman, and he goes crazy. I mean, what here, in verse 23, this is a song, this is a poem, this is excitement, this is supposed to be coming through in the text. And in verse 23, this is the first words that a human being utters as recorded in Scripture. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Because all those animals had been passing before Adam, and he's like, mm, 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 not that one, not that one. And he says, this at last, she's one of me. And that's what it means, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In the Old Testament, um, this happens several times when a relative meets another relative. They would say, you're bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You're, you're one of me. And that's what Adam's saying about Eve. He's saying, you're mine. We're related. We're, you're, you're, you're so different than all these other animals that passed in front of me. And he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam names Eve as an act of care, as an act of leadership in the marriage relationship. Then, this story wraps up. And verse 24 changes tone. Because in verse 24, now application is made to all of us, to all of the people first hearing this written by Moses. The story of, of, of Adam and Eve might be thought of as some unique situation just for the first couple, but Moses, writing under inspiration to the Holy Spirit, now applies it to all of us. He says, therefore, in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's interesting that he says at the beginning of this verse that a man shall leave his father and mother. Because in in the Hebrew society, actually anywhere in the ancient Near East, your family was really important, your parents. And honoring your parents was the next most important thing to honoring God. And in fact, in ancient Israelite society too, if, say, a man grows up, and like my son Thatcher grows up, and I would give him a piece of my land to farm on. And if he were, when he got married, he would farm on that piece of his land, of that land, and he and his family would live there near, near me and my wife. And that was the normal pattern. So this command to leave father and mother is not necessarily a physical leaving, but it's a leaving of priority. And isn't it interesting? I, God didn't create parents and children in the garden in the beginning. Isn't that kind of just interesting to think about? He created a man and a woman, that marriage relationship. That's the primary relationship. And so that, that first relationship we all experience of being children of parents, that's a, that's a temporary relationship that must be put aside and made second priority to the first priority of a marriage relationship. That's what God is saying here. A man shall leave his father and mother. Make that marriage priority. And hold fast to his wife. 
Those terms, that term hold fast, that's covenant language. As, as Josh has mentioned before, this, this covenant of marriage, those terms hold fast are used when there's a covenant established. And it's this idea that marriage, as explained in other passages as well, is not just a temporary agreement. It's not a handshake. It's a covenant. It's serious. It's long-lasting. It's actually lifetime long-lasting. And there's that command to go to leave father and mother and hold fast, to maintain that commitment, stay married, be devoted to one another. And they shall become one flesh. One flesh, some of us, sometimes we think of just the physical relationship in marriage, but it goes much beyond that. It's unity. It's having the same mind. It's actually being like one person. It's this strange thing, but that's what God's getting at here. There's such a closeness, there's such a unity, there's such a devotion and understanding and communication that it's like there's one person now. They're so closely related, husband and wife, that they act together. And it says in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, which is a picture of that one flesh unity. It's a picture of of this closeness, of not hiding anything, of not being, fe- not, no fear of, of exploitation. No fear of being seen for who you actually are. There's this honesty and authenticity and openness. It's a beautiful picture. It's also a foreshadowing of what's to come when Adam and Eve sin and cover themselves and hide from God and eat from the knowledge, from, because they've eaten from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it's also a picture of marriage as God has intended it. So marriage is a covenant of devoted companionship to overcome loneliness. Let me take a few minutes and apply this to us here. First of all, I think maybe most obvious from this passage is that God is the author of marriage. This is the first human institution. This is like ground zero, the foundation of all of human society God is establishing here in Genesis 2. And so we don't have the competence or the right to define what marriage is. God does. The state doesn't have the competence or the ability to define what marriage is. God has already. And so when we think about marriage, we think about it in God's, on God's terms, God's guidelines and rules and commands and his will. Secondly, there are many of us, in the, even in this congregation, and all of us through our lives will experience singleness. Singleness, described in Scripture, is, is, is a, there is a gift of singleness from God. And that gift of singleness, which I will not get into the passages here this morning, that gift of singleness is a gift of freedom to serve God without the encumbrances of, of worrying about husband or wife or worrying about children. It's, it's, a, it's a gift of God to serve His church. And God is, promises to provide special companionship to those who have that gift of singleness instead of uh, the human companion. It's the exception to the rule of it's not good that a man should be alone. But for those who are married, or those who are thinking about being married one day, I want to challenge us with some things from verse 24. In verse 24, God wrote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. For those of us in America, that doesn't sound that difficult, right? Because 
We don't have that ancient Near East mindset where um, the parent, our parents are necessarily the most important thing in the world to us uh, apart from God. We live in a more independent, democratic society and leaving father and mother to be married is, is pretty normal for us. But things do happen in marriage relationships where we put others above our spouse and we need to leave them, forsake them. That's the other way to translate leave is the term forsake. Anything that competes with that closeness, with that companionship in the marriage relationship, we need to take a hard look at. That could be our parents. And sometimes, <laughs> that's why there's the jokes about the in-laws. Parents uh, and, and kids can, those can interfere in marriage relationships. Uh, it could be children. We can put our children in such an elevated place in our marriage relationships that they interfere with the husband-wife relationship. It could be good things like a hobby, uh, a sport, an interest. But we need to think about it. And, and actually, I want to challenge us to do this. To, to, if you're married, to ask your husband, to ask your wife, is there anything in our marriage that's competing with our companionship? Is there anything that we need to think about forsaking? And whatever it is that competes with that companionship needs to be minimized. And whatever builds that closeness and companionship needs to be built. And I think if we ask our husband or wife that, I think they'll have a ready answer if there's actually something going on. So we need to have the courage to ask that question. Is there something we need to forsake? And then to challenge us with the holding fast to his wife, part of verse 24. That devotion, and companionship, that devotion in companionship that we're supposed to have in marriage, it's not always easy. And when we go through those tough times, as Pat prayed about, we have this tendency to go somewhere else in our minds. And we've all done it. Wouldn't my life be better if I weren't married to this person? And we begin to make this mental escape route that maybe there's this other relationship I could pursue or even thinking about divorce as an escape from the pain that I'm in. And there are biblical reasons and biblical grounds for divorce. I'm not trying to say that all divorce is inappropriate or wrong. But what I'm trying to challenge us with is those of us who are married, do we have that escape route in our minds set up? Or even, do we use a threat of leaving, of divorce, inappropriately, to manipulate a husband or wife. The call in marriage is a call to hold fast to one another. And then that command, they shall become one flesh. That command there is a command to unity. It's a command in marriage of, of companionship. And what in our marriages are we doing to build that companionship, to build that one flesh nature? Listening, talking, caring for. It's really, really easy to drift in a marriage over years, over decades, and to forget to pursue that one flesh unity. God is calling us to be companions, loving companions, devoted companions to one another, to overcome loneliness. I think it would be a good question for us to ask our spouse sometime, is, do you ever feel lonely in our marriage? Is there ever something 
some time, something that's happening, some way we can build a unity, a one flesh relationship in our marriage that would build on that devoted companionship. And for those of us who are one day looking to be married, what do you look for in a spouse? In the ways of this world, it's, it's, it's about outward appearance, right? Look for someone that has outward appearance or a certain amount of wealth or something that you want. But when we look at marriage as outlined in Genesis 2, it's a call to look for a companion. When you're looking for someone to be married to, you're looking for someone with whom you can share life's joys and trials, the deepest moments, with someone with whom you can be fully exposed and honest and authentic with. Someone who will be there to overcome loneliness. That's what we're to look for. And this idea of helping, of, of, of companionship, I'm sorry, is also something we need to be praying for for each other. We should be helping others, praying for one another to be companions as spouses. When we pray for each other in our marriages, we pray for husband and wife to be devoted companions, to overcome loneliness. We help others in their marriages to be companions to one another. We do things that build that companionship in marriage. And we flee from those things that take away from that companionship. God has designed marriage to be a covenant of devoted companionship to overcome loneliness. So let me ask, let me help us think about it this way. Because we have this tendency towards sinful selfishness. A lot of times in life when we're married and as years go on, we begin to think more and more about what I need and what I want. I know from my own heart that's where my heart goes. But what this passage reminds me is that there is pain that is caused in the marriage relationship when we pursue our own selfishness. There's loneliness. And that loneliness that can happen and does happen in any marriage relationship at times and seasons is something that we need to think about because our own dreams and desires as individuals are to be subordinated to the marriage covenant we've made to pursue companionship with our spouse. And when that companionship is pursued, there's a freedom there. I'm sure many of us know that when you know you have that companion, devoted companion, to be there with you through thick and thin, there's a strength, there's a confidence, there's a peace, there's a, there's a, it's like, I can do this because we can do this together. And that's what we're to aim for. That's what God blesses us with in marriage. Because all of this in the end is to re- reflect the relationship of Jesus to his church. Right? That's, that's what our marriages are supposed to show. Jesus' devotion to his church, his commitment to his church, his love for his church, his unity with his church, his sacrifice for his church. And as we live faithfully married before God, we reflect Jesus and his relationship to his church. So here's my challenge. It's a difficult homework assignment, but it's this, if you're married, ask your spouse, how are we doing? And then listen. (laughs) And really listen. Just say, 
these are some words about how God designed marriage. And you're just looking at verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2 and just saying, how am I being as a companion? Do you feel lonely? When do you feel lonely? How can I be a better devoted companion to you to overcome that loneliness? And then after listening, say, you go to someone else, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a friend, and say, I need you to help hold me accountable before God to be a devoted, better devoted companion to my spouse and pray for each other that way and check in with each other. Marriage is a covenant of devoted companionship before God to overcome loneliness. Let's pray. I'll be the first to admit, God, that I have fallen short of being a devoted companion to my wife to overcome loneliness. And I think each of us in this room who is married, who has been married, can make that same confession. We ask that by your Spirit you would strengthen us through your word, love one another in marriage, to support one another in our marriages, to care for one another, to pray for one another as a church. Would you build up this church by building up the marriages in this church? For those who are single, Lord, we pray for your companionship for them. Would you give a sense of your presence and your power and your love personally and tangibly empowers them to service in your church. God, for many of us here who have been through divorce and death with our spouse, pray for comfort and help and strength. And for those who are in the midst of tension in marriage, things are not right, how would you help them by your spirit to know what the next step is? Lord, we ask that you would take your words, apply them in our hearts, by your spirit, strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to invite you to sing with us uh, the next song, which I don't remember what it is because I don't have my bulletin.